Whether you love them or you hate them, you cannot deny that the Beatles had a major impact on music, popularizing the backmasking technique and releasing in their later years highly engineered albums. You may have heard the conspiracy theory that says Paul McCartney is dead, but have you heard the one that says Paul McCartney is the only one that actually lived? Or what about the one that says the Beatles never existed at all? You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Onion, The Beatles' Conspiracies People love to make lists of the best bands or best musicians of all time, and the group that will be in the number one slot almost every single time is The Beatles. I don't know if it's possible for modern people to understand just how huge and how influential they were. They were massive. They signaled the British invasion in the American music scene, and in their later albums, they kind of fundamentally changed what it is to be a rock band. When so many people are paying attention to one thing, it's inevitable that ideas are gonna start to circulate. Of course, the number one theory is the Paul Paul is dead dead theory. theory. And the theory goes like this. Paul McCartney was decapitated in a car crash on November 9th, 1966 on the M1 motorway outside of London after leaving the Abbey Road Studios in a bit of a huff after an argument with his fellow band members. He was replaced by an orphan from Edinburgh named William Shear Campbell, who was known affectionately as Billy Shears, and he was the winner of a Paul lookalike contest from a year or two earlier. This was at the behest of the record companies, but also at the behest of MI5, who were worried about public unrest if the truth came out that Paul was dead. The other Beatles helped cover this up, but the guilt eventually got to them and they started inserting references to Paul's death in their songs and on their album covers. Seems outlandish. How did this start? In early 1967, sometime in early January, rumors began to make the rounds in London bars and clubs that Paul had died on January 7th, 1967, in a crash on the M1 motorway. Later, people would amend this to November 9th, 1966, which we'll talk about later. May 1967, McCartney made a joke in a press conference about this theory while they were promoting their new album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which, of course, only fueled the rumors. In August that year, 
year. Paul's daughter Mary was born, and he kind of withdrew from public life. And the fact that he wasn't around so much anymore, I mean, this is the band that made the film Help, which is all about them being chased from all over town by crazed fans. Suddenly, he was out of the public eye. Was it because he was dead? On September 17th, 1969, Tim Harper of the Drake University student newspaper, The Drake Times Delphic, wrote an article called, Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead? This is the first published Paul is Dead theory. A couple of weeks later, rumors abound that the band might be breaking up. Their press officer, Derek Taylor, said they were getting a, quote, flood of calls from everybody, reporters, disc jockeys, and so on. October 12, 1969, a DJ in Detroit named Russ Gibb got an on-air call from someone who claimed that Paul was dead and that there were clues in lots and lots of the Beatles albums. The caller convinced Gibb to play Revolution Number no. 9, which is the last very odd, highly engineered piece on the White Album, backwards on the air so that everybody could hear the secret backmasked message. And by October 22, 1969, the Paul is Dead theory began to circulate in the international press. And from there, well, it just took off. It's very easy to go down the rabbit hole on this stuff. But let's take a look at some of the so-called evidence for Paul is Dead. If the clues are in the albums and songs, what are some of those clues? So in June 1966, they released the Yesterday and Today original cover, which had them surrounded by meat and baby doll parts. It's known as the Butcher cover. Supposedly, they say it was a comment on Americans' military actions in Vietnam. Other people thought that it was them making a comment about how North American record companies butchered their records because they would often rearrange the songs when releasing them in America. Paul McCartney sits on a steamer trunk surrounded by the other band members. However, if you take the album and you turn the cover counterclockwise, the trunk looks kind of like a coffin. On the album Revolver, there's a song called Taxman, which was recorded in April and in June 1966. The album came out in August 1966. And there's a line, Now my advice for those who died, declare the pennies on your eyes. Well, all of that is certainly too early if, in fact, Paul had died on January 7th, 1967, or the amended date of November 9th, 1966. It's still too early. It all really starts to take off with the 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Very famously, on the back of the album, Paul is facing away from the camera. He's uh, facing away backwards. On the drum, on the front cover, the words Lonely Hearts can be seen. But, and I don't know who figured this out, but if you hold up a mirror horizontally across the middle of the drum where the words Lonely Hearts are, it kind of looks like the words One He Die. And then there are these lines dividing the words. The first two are both straight vertical lines, which people think says the number 11. And the second and third, the second one is a vertical line, and the third one is an X. And IX is the Roman numeral for 9. So even though it's mixing numerical systems, that would spell out 11-9, or that Paul died on November 9th. However, 11-9, meaning November 9th, in the way that the British write dates, would not be November 9th, because only in America do they do month and then day. The British actually do day and then month, which would make that September 11th. So, perhaps, in fact, Paul died on September 11th, 1966. Still too early for yesterday and today or Revolver to contain any clues, but a different date. On the album cover, Paul has an armband that has OPD. Some people thought it's actually hard to read, which people thought originally meant originally produced dead. 
Uh, it turns out it actually says OPP, which then people interpreted as meaning other people's property. But in fact, the armband was a gift from the Ontario Provincial Police, who abbreviate their title to OPP. The setting on the cover is supposed to resemble a garden party, but if you look very closely, there seems to be a freshly turned pile of dirt, which is a grave. So the whole thing is not a party, but a burial. There's even in the sort of collage in the back, you can see Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, dressed as a priest. Comedian Izzy Bon is raising his hand over Paul's head in a gesture that some people interpret to mean that evil is present. Uh, others think it's sort of the universal Western gesture for stop right there. While they're all holding musical instruments, three of them are holding gold instruments, but Paul's instrument is black. There's a group of white hyacinths underneath the word Beatles, and it kind of looks like a left-handed guitar. Now, Paul was the only lefty in the group, and if you look carefully, it seems like maybe the flowers spell out the word Paul followed by a question mark. The man who actually arranged the flowers later confirmed that he intended to make it look kind of like a guitar. Billy Shears, the supposed person who replaced Paul McCartney, is introduced at the beginning of the Ringo Starr song with a little help from my friends and in theory sings that song. And of course, the song A Day in the Life has the line, he blew his mind out at a car, he didn't notice that the lights had changed, a crowd of people stood and stared, they'd seen his face before. If you play segments of A Day in the Life backwards, supposedly it says, Paul is dead, miss him, miss him. The hints continue in the next album, Magical Mystery Tour. Now, they actually made a movie of it, and in the movie, during the song Your Mother Should Know, Paul is wearing a black carnation, an indication that he's dead. On the cover, if you turn the cover upside down, the word Beatles on it seems to spell out a phone number. Now, some people think the phone number is 537-1438, or perhaps it's 834-7132. Both of these were real phone numbers in the London area code, and they were besieged, once this theory got out there, with people asking, what happened to Paul? Others say the number is 231-7438, which is actually the phone number of a London mortuary, the ones who buried Paul. On the album cover, Paul is dressed as a black walrus with his arms sort of outstretched like in a crucifixion. Later, the Beatles said that originally John Lennon was supposed to be the one in the walrus costume, but it didn't fit him as well and it fit Paul better and that's why Paul ended up wearing it. Now, in the old days of albums, you sometimes got extra goodies along with your records, and included with the Magical Mystery Tour album, there was a 24-page booklet. Inside that booklet, there are far too many clues to go into, but if you ever get a chance to find a copy of it, sift through it. On the song Strawberry Fields Forever on the Magical Mystery Tour album, John mumbles, I bury or I buried Paul at the end. He mumbles something. In TV interviews later, uh, record label executive Alan Klein said that he did say I buried Paul, meaning his guitar had buried Paul's sound, and then they just decided to keep the aside of the final recording. They did this sort of thing all the time. Shortly after that, John Lennon in another interview said, actually what he said was cranberry sauce. On the song Hello Goodbye, Paul sings the line, I don't know why you say goodbye, I say hello, because it's really Paul too, Billy Shears, singing to the others and why won't you accept me? If you play the end of the song Blue Jay Way backwards, it sounds like somebody saying Paul is bloody, 
And of course, I am the walrus. I am the walrus supposedly is chock full of clues. The line stupid bloody Tuesday is a reference to the night that Paul angrily left Abbey Road in his car and died. Somehow people have got it that he was pronounced dead at 5 a.m. on November 9th, which was a Wednesday. So if it's a Tuesday, the argument and him leaving must have happened late, late, late on the 8th. That was a Tuesday. And then I guess he drove around for a while and then crashed. Some people think that the animal, the walrus, is a symbol of death in Greek, which it is not. Uh, However, it is a symbol of death in some Arctic indigenous people's cultures. Some claim that the nonsense line, is said by Humpty Dumpty in James Joyce's dream novel, Finnegan's Wake, just before he falls off the wall and breaks. Uh, This is not true, but I mean, who's going to go read Finnegan's Wake and check, right? And the, the little speaking part at the end, where you hear somebody say, oh, untimely death. That is from Shakespeare's play, King Lear. The character who says it is named Oswald, which is also, incidentally, the name of the supposed assassin of John F. Kennedy. And if you play that section backwards, you can hear, Paul is dead, ha ha, said twice. Now we move on to the White Album, which has a whole bunch of interesting engineering things going on. There's clearly nothing to be discerned from the cover except for the fact that it's white, possibly, which represents death or heaven. The White Album, which is the nickname, it's actually just called The Beatles, was released in November 1969. On that album, you have the song Don't Pass Me By with the line, I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. But that just means it lost your head. At the end of the song, I'm so tired, after the line, I give you everything I've got for a little peace of mind, John mumbles something. (laughs) Supposedly, if you play it backwards, it sounds like he's saying, Paul is dead now, miss him, miss him. There's also a line in there about cigarettes, and cigarettes are sometimes called coffin nails. The weird, almost Radiohead-like last 30 seconds or so of Long, Long, Long supposedly is an audio recreation of the car crash that killed Paul. The song Glass Onion has the line, here's another clue for you, the walrus was Paul, which is clearly a reference to the cover of the Magical Mystery Tour 1967 album. And of course, Revolution Number 9, if you play backwards the section that says number 9, number 9, it says, turn me on dead man. This is what that caller had that Detroit radio DJ play on the air. On the Yellow Submarine album cover, which is released just a couple months later in January 1969, John is making devil horns behind Paul's head on the cover. And September 26, 1969, Abbey Road comes out. They're all crossing that street. All three living Beatles are dressed as if they're in a funeral procession. Ringo is the undertaker, dressed in black. Harrison in denim is the grave digger. And Lennon is white as either a preacher, though I don't know any preachers that wear white, or an angelic figure, or possibly just God. Paul is barefoot because the dead don't need shoes. In America, they thought that the British don't bury their dead with their shoes. This is not true. They do. Plus, you'll notice that he's not walking in step with the others. It also looks as if perhaps they're all leaving a cemetery there on the left. It isn't. It's the Abbey Road recording studio. Paul is holding a cigarette in his right hand, a coffin nail, even though he's left-handed. In the background on the left, you can see a white VW Beetle with the number plate LMW281F. Some people say that it shows that Paul would have been 28 at the time of the album's release if he'd actually lived. So the 28 is his age, and if means the IF, if means if he'd lived. It's actually not true. He would have been 27. They further go on to say that the LMW at the front of the license plate means Linda McCartney weeps. 
The man who actually owned the VW Beetle said his car was parked there by accident. After he saw the album cover, he insured it for thousands of pounds, and then later he sold that car to the Volkswagen Museum in Wolfsburg, Germany for $23,000, which was pretty good because he only paid 400 pounds for it. In 1993, Paul McCartney parodied all the rumors that he was dead with a live album called Paul is Live, and the album cover has Paul standing on one leg in the Abbey Road crosswalk with a sheepdog standing in front of him, and behind him is another VW Beetle with the license plate 51IS because McCartney was 51 when this album came out. On the back of the album, next to the word Beatles, there are eight holes, but if you connect them in a certain way, sort of like a connect the dots, they make the number three, meaning there are really only three Beatles. There is much, much, much more out there, but those are the broad strokes of the Paul is Dead theory. A lot of people took it to heart, whether they believed it or not. On November 30th, 1969, uh, a TV station in New York, WWOR, broadcast a Paul is Dead special, which was set in a fake courtroom hosted by the lawyer F. Lee Bailey. He was something of a celebrity lawyer who would, among other things, go on to become part of the O.J. Simpson dream team in 1995. Paul McCartney's first solo album, just called McCartney, has a bowl surrounded by cherries on the cover, but none of them are in the bowl, as if to suggest that life is not a bowl of cherries. Interestingly, the recording and release of this album had been a huge, huge, huge secret. Paul didn't announce that he was leaving the band until April 10th, 1970, and then his album dropped one week later on April 17th. Interestingly, the date people have chosen, November 9th, 1966, for being the day that Paul McCartney was killed, is actually the day that John Lennon met Yoko at the Indica Gallery in London. So in some ways you could say that 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 was the seed of the death of the Beatles if you want to go down the Yoko broke them up routine. However, you do have to think, if his very good friend, possibly best friend, had just died, why would he have gone to a gallery opening that same day? As so very often happens in the conspiracy world, the Paul is dead theory got kind of reversed, and there is another theory which we're going to call Paul Paul Lives. This is the theory. Three of the Beatles all died at different times, and Paul McCartney is the only surviving original member. All of the Paul is dead conspiracy stuff out there is simply an attempt to misdirect the public from the truth. This almost entirely comes from an article written in 1994 by a University of Virginia student named Chris Fischel titled, Everybody But Paul Is Dead. So he says in there, Ringo died in 1963, then George died in 1964, and then John died in 1965, and then Ringo's replacement died in a car crash in 1966 and was then himself replaced, and it was rumors about all of this untimely death that started the whole Paul Is Dead business. He does a great job of taking much of the Paul is dead evidence to argue that actually what all of that is really saying is that Paul's not dead, he's just different from the rest of them, meaning that he's the living one and the rest of them are dead. But remember, he has the debts going back all the way to 1963, starting with Ringo. So the 1963 album, The Beatles, which was their second studio album, has Ringo's face out of alignment with the others, an indication that he's died. George supposedly dies in 1964, and their third album, A Hard Day's Night, on the cover, one of George's pictures in the middle has him facing away from the camera and it's dark. Plus, he's the only one with a cigarette, a coffin nail. Later that year, they came out with their fourth studio album, Beatles for Sale, and they're all wearing black. Plus, there's a song called Babies in Black. In 1965, they released an EP called Nowhere Man. The cover has Ringo sitting on a stone monument, who apart from the others, who are all standing underneath a tree, and the monument symbolizes his tombstone. 
On the 1965 album, Help, which is their fifth album, they're all in semaphore poses, but those poses do not spell out the word help, but instead spell out N-U-J-V, which, the writer of this article says, is an acronym for a new unknown John vocalist, because John Lennon had just died and been replaced. The chances, he says, of them picking random shapes, which is what they said they did and the photographer said they did, that just happened to spell out N-U-J-V cannot possibly be coincidence. Also in 1965, they come out with their sixth album. These guys are really cranking them out. Rubber Soul. Paul, on that album, the only original one left, sings, You don't look different, but you have changed in the song I'm looking through you. A reference to the other three replacements. On the seventh album, Revolver, Fake John sings the song I'm Only Sleeping, which is clearly a metaphor for death. Also on Revolver, Fake John sings I Know What It's Like to Be Dead on She Said, She Said. And Eleanor Rigby has Father Mackenzie, who represents Paul, walking away from the grave because no one was saved. Obviously, 1967, Sgt. Pepper's, their eighth album. We got Paul being backwards, but to show that he's alive, not dead. The hand over his head is in a stop position saying no more deaths. Billy Shears is the Ringo replacement replacement in this theory. So Billy Shears is not the replacement for Paul, as in the Paul is dead theory, but he is Ringo 3. In 1973, Billy Shears, pretending to be Ringo Starr, will sing in a song, quote, My name is Billy Shears. It has been for so many years. This is in the song, I'm the Greatest. Plus, that Ringo wrote the song, a little help from my friends. A Day in the Life actually does not describe the 1966 car crash that killed Paul McCartney, but describes the 1966 car crash that killed Ringo too. How do you know this? Because the song starts with an alarm clock ringing, ringing, Ringo. Just like The Paul is Dead, the 1967 album Magical Mystery Tour, if you turn it upside down, it looks like there's a phone number there. But the word Beatles is spelled out in stars, like Ringo Star. Paul singing hello goodbye is him saying hello to the replacements and goodbye to the others. And yes, Strawberry Fields forever. Fake John supposedly says, I buried Paul. Again, he said he said just cranberry sauce, but okay. I buried Paul suggesting that Paul has died. But in another line of the song, there's the line, nothing is real, which shows that this was a red herring to throw people off the scent. On the White Album, John 2, the replacement John, sings on Your Blues the line, If I Ain't Dead Already, which is ironic because the original one is dead. The Abbey Road album, 1969, the license plate 28IF could refer to John, who was born in October 1940, and he would have been 28 when the album was released in September 1969, if he had lived. Plus, the I in if could stand for the number one, because John would have been 28 in one month. John 2's song, I Want You, She's So Heavy, suddenly cuts off just like the real John Lennon's life was. The song Come Together has the line, come together over me, meaning over a grave. There's also the line, one and one and one is three, meaning the three dead beetles are who people are going to come together over, over their grave. Oh, but weren't there four deaths? Didn't their first Ringo replacement die? Well, Ringo 3's song, Octopus's Garden, says, I'd like to be under the sea because Ringo 2 was buried at sea. So even though there have been four deaths, 
come together references the only three land graves. It's worth noting that Mr. Fishel also found lots of connections between Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson in a contest for the Skeptical Inquirer in 1992, just to kind of show that just because there are a lot of seemingly random coincidences between the two doesn't mean there is a conspiracy, but it also doesn't mean that there isn't a conspiracy. Obviously, finding connections was kind of this guy's jam. Did he mean this article seriously, or was it just an exercise? Unclear. Why do people believe these things? It seems preposterous that one or possibly three members of a four-person musical group that is that famous dies or die, and that it is very quickly covered up by the other band members, or in the Paul is Alive version, Paul himself. Everyone who knew them, including their family members, the record companies, the engineers, and, in one version of the theory, MI5 itself. You have to keep in mind that a lot of these supposed clues that people find hiding inside of the recordings are actually strange little asides that occurred during the recording process. There's a famous one at the end of Helter Skelter where Ringo shouts, I've got blisters on my fingers, which they decided to leave in. He actually did and his fingers hurt and they just left it in because they thought it was funny. If there was some big secret, why would they keep slipping references into their songs and albums about it? Again, the common theory is that it was guilt, but that seems a bit flimsy. Now, supposedly, it's said that Paul McCartney rather enjoyed reading all these conspiracy theories about him being dead or being the sole survivor, what have you. Uh, John Lennon was a little less enthused by it. So, John Lennon decided to write a song, ended up on the White Album, called Glass Onion. This song would be a red herring song, full of all sorts of gibberish lyrics that sounded like they maybe referenced something. If you, if you only knew the context, if you only knew the secret. Obviously, an onion has lots of layers. You peel away one layer, there's another. Peel that away, there's another. Peel that away, there's another. And then by the time you get to the middle, there's nothing. Plus, it's glass, which means it was transparent the whole time. McCartney himself actually ended up creating the structure for the song, and I think he ended up writing something like half the lyrics also. So it's really a, it's a McCartney and Lennon collaborative work. So in the song, the lyrics make reference to a bunch of uh, other songs, suggesting to those on the hunt that, that you maybe you should go to those songs to find more, quote, evidence, as well as some kind of obscure little things. Now, at the very end, suddenly the song stops and turns into this lovely little weird bit of strings. In the original recording, it had been a series of sound effects instead. There was breaking glass, a telephone ringing, uh, a long note played on an organ, and a BBC announcer shouting, it's a goal! But they ended up scrapping that and just putting in that string section instead. There is another, even more comprehensive theory. This theory was first found on a website called The Beatles Never Existed. This website has now since disappeared. At the top of the homepage, it said very specifically, this is not a joke and it is very serious. So let's look at the theory, The Beatles, the Beatles never, never existed, existed at, at all. all. So the claim is there was never, ever a group of people called the Beatles. It was just a bunch of different actors playing one of these four different roles at different times. So John Lennon is a character, not a real person. And several different people played John Lennon over the years. Same is true for all the rest of them. Kind of like James Bond. First it's Sean Connery, then it's 
more than it's on and on. The proof was a series of incredibly detailed photo analyses of their faces, eyebrows, noses, chins, teeth, mouth shapes, all of them slightly different in the different pictures, how their heights were never the same, and other elements of them changed throughout each Beatles, quote, career, indicating that they're very similar looking, but very different people. So kind of a, a proto-boy band, except that they kept replacing the people. The whole tone of the website was a little bit hysterical, and the author or authors seemed very affronted. They sort of blamed the actors who were playing John and Paul and George and Ringo. Not what must have been a massive conspiracy to have this happen. They don't seem to target their anger at the record companies, who would clearly be the people behind all this, but rather at the duplicitous liars who pretended to be these people and tricked their fans. The website kind of goes on at length, getting into some very, very minute details. Now, there is a variant floated there to the they-were-all-actors theory. And that is that they were all, ready for it, clones. They were clones. Because, as the website says, clones are only 95 to 99% identical to the original, which I don't think is actually true. And that's why there are only small discrepancies in these pictures. I mean, the truth is, if that's true, you can't really then get angry at the clones who were lab-grown and forced into these roles. Plus, let's face it, that means the clones had to have been started a long time ago because it's not like John Lennon suddenly becomes a child again. After that website got put onto various crazy conspiracy theories lists on the internet, a variant of the variant began to be floated out there. Not that they were actors, not that they were clones, but they were the actual people pulled in from a parallel nearby universe. This is, of course, assuming that the multiple universe theory in quantum physics is true and that there's a way to somehow reach into those other universes. So the idea is, is that, for example, Rango Starr died. They replaced him by reaching into a nearby universe and pulling in an alternate reality Rango Starr. But he didn't last long because if you're not living in your original universe, apparently it causes all sorts of health issues. So that one dies. So then they have to reach into another universe, pull in another Ringo, of course, depriving that universe of their Ringo, to be fair, and that this went on and on and on until it was no longer possible to keep doing it. And that's why the band, quote unquote, broke up. Speaking of alternative realities, in 2019, Danny Boyle, the film director, uh, directed a film called Yesterday which stars Himish Patel from EastEnders as a singer and songwriter who, during a blackout, gets knocked over by a bus, and when he wakes up, no one has ever heard of the Beatles. He has. He knows all. He's a huge Beatles fan. He knows all their songs by heart, but no one else has ever heard of them. So he begins to start a solo career, releasing the different Beatles songs as his own. Not really quite the same as the we all remember them, but they were all a lie idea, but it's a nice fun idea nonetheless. As that film shows, it doesn't really matter in the long run who does or doesn't die, who lives and doesn't live. It's about the music. Perhaps we care about the people, but we don't really. We just care about the music. One of the reasons people latch on to conspiracy theories about the Beatles is that they love them and they wish that they had continued to make more music. In 2009, an album was released called Everyday Chemistry, released by a person or persons unknown. The liner notes give a very interesting backstory, and there's a website out there as well. 
A person going by the name of James Richards, which supposedly is a combination of Paul McCartney's real legal name, which is James Paul McCartney, Paul is his middle name, and Richard Starkey, which is Ringo's real name, right? These are the only two Beatles still alive today. John died in 1980. George Harrison died not that terribly long ago. So James Richards met a man named Jonas. Jonas came from a parallel universe where the Beatles did not break up, where they stayed together and continued to record music through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. The two of them stayed up all night talking about how much they loved the Fab Four, and then Jonas had to go back to his own universe, and Mr. James Richards stole a cassette tape, and that cassette tape is called Everyday Chemistry, and it was one of the alternate realities Beatles albums. Now, if you listen to the songs, they're actually all mashups of various Beatle members' solo career songs. So, like, the first song has elements of a band on the run, it has elements of a Ringo song, it has elements of a song by John Lennon, and they're all sort of mashed up together. The idea being that the things in our universe that the Beatles went on to record are things that would have somehow been expressed had they stayed together. Of course, Richard says they are not mashups. They are actual songs recorded by the actual Beatles in an actual parallel universe. If you want to know more about that backstory, find a website called The Beatles Never Broke Up. And you can find which songs are in each mashup by going to the Wikipedia page about everyday chemistry. You also think about The Black Album, which is a three-disc compilation of Beatles solo projects post-breakup, which was released in 2014 by, and it was all curated by the actor Ethan Hawke, and many of the songs were used in the film Boyhood, which came out that same year. Alternate universes realities are all well and good, but that's a little mealy, right? Just one album for fans? Well, in 1973, a rock band formed in Canada called Klaatu, that's K-L-A-A-T-U. That's the name of the alien visitor in the 1951 Robert Wise science fiction classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Klaatu played a kind of a weird and interesting mix of symphonic rock, progressive rock, art rock, and pop all through 1982, and they actually sort of got the nickname The Canadian Beatles. Their first album was named Klaatu, after their name, but the executives at Capitol Records didn't really understand the reference, so they told them to change the title. So they changed it to 347 EST. 347 EST, or Eastern Standard Time, is the time that the character Klaatu arrives in Washington, D.C. in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. On the albums are songs like Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft, Sir Bodsworthy Rugglesby III, Sub Rosa Subway, and Anus of Uranus, originally titled Heinous of Uranus, and then later the H was dropped. The very last sound on the album is the squeak of a mouse, and the very first sound on the next album, which was called Hope and released the following year, is a mouse squeak, suggesting the two of them should be listened to as a whole work. Now, when the first album came out, they had no pictures, no credits, no biographical information, just an album of eight songs, all written by Klaatu. And that was it. So we've got a lot of little engineering tricks that are somewhat reminiscent of the Beatles and so on. Steve Smith, a journalist who writes for the Providence Journal in Rhode Island in 1977, suggested that perhaps this band, this Klaatu band, was actually the Beatles themselves, still making music behind this anonymous name. Oh, sure, they'd broken up, but then secretly they got back together and they continued making music without all the Beatles hype. And the reason they said they were Canadians is that would just further confuse the trail. 
What's the evidence? So first off, Capitol Records, who released Klaatu, also released Beatles stuff in North America. Their humor is similar. Their engineering tricks are similar. They kind of have a Beatles-y sound, especially the sound, uh, the song Sub Rosa Subway. And it is weird at the time to not give any biographical or artist information or credit. Radio stations started finding clues in the songs, and so did various print media. Sales started to go up, and then a couple of the songs became hits. So the album came out, sales started to go down. These rumors started and sales went back up. Richard Carpenter of The Carpenters was a fan and actually he and his sister recorded a cover of Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft, which became a top 40 hit. Capitol Records tried to capitalize <clears throat> on the publicity by intentionally releasing vague statements in order to fuel the rumor mills and thus hopefully fuel sales of records so people could listen for clues that it's really the Fab Four. Finally, the program director at WWDC in Washington, D.C., a man named Dwight Douglas, contacted the U.S. Copyright Office and discovered the real names of the band. Klaatu went on to record five albums. They used techniques like backmasking that the Beatles had pioneered. I think there's even one song that is actually, it's a song with another song interleaved into it. They never performed live. Uh, there was one animated music video called A Routine Day, made in 1977, made by rotoscoping the band members, which was then turned into a half-an-hour TV special called Happy New Year, Planet Earth. But then the Canadian backers dropped out, and the band tried to finance it themselves because it was finished, but they never actually got it released. If you ever get a chance to see this, apparently it's one of the great rarities in the music world. In May 2005, a whole convention devoted to Klaatu, the band, called Klaatu Khan occurred in Toronto, and they even have a website called klaatu.org. There is one more theory out there about the Beatles, which we're going to call the secret, the secret history. history. They plotted, they plotted murder, murder, and Paul and is Paul still is dead. dead. So, someone by the name of L. Gunblade claimed to have assembled a bunch of verbatim conversations that Beatles members had had about their original drummer, Pete Best. Like one supposedly happened behind the Grapes, which was a Liverpool pub they used to hang out in. While Pete went to the toilet, the other three were supposedly overheard discussing how to get him out of the band. So why get rid of Pete? Okay, first off, Paul was jealous because Pete was the best looking of all four of them, and he got all the girls. John hated his haircut. Pete refused to go along with the new Beatles haircut style. And George was just happy that he wasn't being targeted by the other two who were evil and vicious. Also, supposedly, George Harrison, in an unwritten memoir, so I don't know how anybody has access to it, describes a plot to have Pete's drums explode at the end of a concert at the Star Club in Hamburg, which would have killed him. The other band members would have exited the stage earlier. The drums were all rigged to go, but then something went wrong and they didn't explode. At a demo recording session in Abbey Road Studios, George Martin, the producer, tells them, you need to get rid of the drummer. I can make a phone call and he'll never play drums again. I can make another phone call. He'll never make it back to Liverpool. On the other hand, you could sack him. Lads, I'll leave it for you to decide. Whether this is a real conversation or not, whether it was meant seriously or as a joke, who knows. On August 12, 1962, Pete Best was ousted and replaced by Ringo Starr. As Pete was told the news at Brian Epstein's offices at uh, NEMS Enterprises, Epstein supposedly, according to L. Gunblade, yelled after him as, as he was leaving, Look, just be glad they didn't want you dead. It was on the table, Pete. It was on the bloody table. 
Later that year, 1962, Pete Best created a new band called the Pete Best All-Stars, and very drunk on stage one night, he joked to the audience that this next song is dedicated to the Beatles, who wanted to kill me. The audience thought that was a joke, but actually, according to L. Gunblade, it was not. Life continues, and in 1964, John feels so guilty that he buys Pete a green grocers, a grocery store. A dwarf performing circus tricks in front of the store tells L. Gunblade that he heard John say, quote, I hope this makes up for the whole we were going to kill you thing, to which Pete rather nervously replies, sure, sure, we're even. In 1966, Pete Best finds himself in financial difficulties, so he gets backstage to the August 29th, 1966 concert in San Francisco's Candlestick Park, which would turn out to be the last concert the Beatles ever played together. He said to them that he would expose the truth of the murder plot unless they agreed to never tour again. He wanted people to forget them. Ringo, during this conversation, apparently hid in the bathroom, and the other three agreed that that would be the case. That's why it's the last concert. A couple of months later, in October 1966, John Lennon is in Spain filming a not very well-received British black comedy called How I Won the War, and all of them end up meeting together in a restaurant. Paul starts to freak out can't handle the pressure anymore and says he's going to tell the world and expose the fact that they were going to blow up Pete Best on stage. He leaves and the other three agree that he must be dealt with. Early in 1967, John, George, and Ringo try and get tour manager Neil Aspinall to cut the brake lines on Paul's car. What they don't know is that Paul's girlfriend at the time, Jane Asher, an actress and model, had already asked him to do the exact same thing to punish him for all of his running around with other women. So, Neil does. He collects money from Asher, and he collects money from the Beatles, and he cuts the brake lines. Paul crashes outside London on a side road and dies, and the band replaces him with a guy that they've been training for just this moment. Uh, incidentally, Jay Gunblade claims that this information came from, quote, a friend of Aspinall's neighbor's cousin who told the story on her deathbed in 1997 in a lunatic asylum in Manchester. So now fake Paul breaks up with Asher that spring, and she starts an affair with Pete Best, the man they wanted to kill. The two of them share notes on the not-so-fab three and decide to blackmail them for $200 million. L. Gumblade says, A man named Reg told this to me in an East Brompton pub in London. He couldn't remember where he heard it, but Reg picked up my tab, so I have no reason to doubt him. In August, they make their demands. The group agrees. They set up a company called Apple Corps as a funnel for the blackmail money. Now, that company, rather famously, lost a lot of money, which is a surprise considering how popular the Beatles were. They blame it on poor management, but really it's because of the blackmail payments. January 1969, Pete confronts the Beatles again, demanding that they insert clues about the real Paul's death into some of their songs. He also demands that they must break up by 1970 or he'll expose everything, blackmail payments notwithstanding. Now, they were just about to film the movie Let It Be, and that's why there are all these tensions and all this fighting, because they're all freaked out that Pete's going to tell on them. They break up, and Pete Best keeps his silence. He currently lives in Liverpool, and Jane Asher currently lives in Chelsea. Now, this is a great story. Uh, you can find some of this material on a hidden page on a website called 
the No Talent Ass Clowns, which claims to be the official worship site, quote unquote, for, quote, the greatest rock and roll band on earth. Digging through that website, you discover that L. Gunblade is Lars Gunblade, a supposed rock legend at the center of the band. You look at the website, and it's so obviously a parody site, and a very elaborate one at that. Plus, some of these comments about where Lars Gunblade overheard these things, a bartender who picked up his bar tab, a dwarf performing in front of a greengrocer's. It's clear Clearly a gag. Supposedly all of these are excerpts from a book that Lars wrote called The Beatles Conspiracy Against Pete Best, but that book was never actually written. However, it being the internet and it being the age we're in, there are some people who take it seriously. It has a lot going for it. Paul is still dead. The Beatles are not wonderful, but in fact evil and sort of cowardly. Or maybe the people who say that they believe it are pretending to take it seriously. Or maybe some of those people are saying that they believe it in order to trigger people who really do. I just don't know anymore. I just don't know what's true anymore. One thing's for sure. While doing some research on these various conspiracy theories, I ended up listening to a lot of Beatles. And I have to tell you, you gotta give them their due. Whether they were just a group of people who finally got on each other's nerves and broke up and went their separate ways, or one of them died, or three of them died, or they were all clones, or they were all actors, or they were from another dimension or another parallel universe, or parallel universe number one, they didn't break up and continued to make music, and in another one, they didn't actually ever exist, whether they reformed as a Canadian band that which had almost no commercial success, none of that really matters. Ultimately, it's about the music. And if you were like me, and just about sick to death of the Beatles, it might be time to go and listen to them again, because man, there's a lot of great stuff out there. They really very well may have been the greatest band in history. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.